Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Welcome to Brute Facts. Man, how do you like that, uh, that opening right there? That was from a friend of mine, Pasta Mike at Pasta Mike Productions. He does awesome work. Absolutely love it. And he loves me so much that he decided to do a bunch of them for me. So anyway, uh, I have a fantastic guest today, uh, Joe Schmidt. He is an author. He has uh, peer-reviewed papers, I believe, that's been submitted. Maybe I'll let him talk about it. (laughs) I know he's helped out on some things. Anyone that's in philosophy of religion definitely knows who Joe is. Um, So without uh, me talking too much and bringing on the star of the show, let's get ready. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing wonderful. I'm so excited for this. Absolutely. So um, we've kind of been in, like some of the other guys that uh, I've brought on here, we've been in uh, philosophy group together. Um, I think we've interacted a couple of times, but I've uh, been a fan of your work for a while. You're a young guy, but uh, most definitely talented. Um, and you like to hang out with one of my favorite atheists, Graham Oppie. So uh, you also run a YouTube channel. What's your YouTube channel? Uh, it's Majesty of Reason. It comes from a quote from uh, Baruch Spinoza. And the quote, it's like my favorite quote. It is, uh, what altar of refuge can a man find for himself when he commits treason against the majesty of reason? So. Absolutely. You got to love Spinoza. Yeah. Spinoza is fantastic. So um, most people, if they uh, have seen um, Joe work or do his videos or any of his work or stuff, you probably don't even know if he's a theist or not, because <laughs> I know that for a while I didn't know if Joe was a theist or not. So uh, I think that's a badge of honor, though, because you come at it uh, pretty objectively and uh, understand both sides of it. So where do you stand on that? Yeah, so roughly, the best characterization is probably like agnostic. Um, That's probably the best characterization. Now, there are different ways you can break down what it means to be an agnostic. So I I break it down quickly into three different categories. So one of them is just a kind of suspension agnostic, where you just completely suspend your confidence level. Like you don't say that your confidence level is 0% that God exists, or 100%, or 50%. You just suspend it entirely. Um, Another one is an epistemic agnostic. So that's what I would fall into. And that is essentially saying either that, hey, I do have a confidence level in the proposition that God exists. Maybe it's around 50%, roughly, something like that. Uh, That's one way that you could do it. Or another way you could say, like, it's kind of indeterminate or ambiguous where where the evidence points after all the weighing up and whatnot. And so um, it's not like you're suspending it entirely, uh, but you still kind of are, you know, remaining agnostic. So that's the second one, epistemic agnostic. And then the final one uh, is a kind of in-principle agnostic where they say you cannot know in principle either way whether or not God exists. Like maybe maybe God would be so transcendent that our minds, our finite and limited minds cannot even grasp or, you know, something like that. Who knows? So, yeah, I would fall under the uh, epistemic agnostic. I'm not sure if I would say I used to say um, about 50 50 either way, but I'm coming to appreciate perhaps a more kind of I don't know. It's a little bit more indeterminate. Uh, I think there might be some aspects of incommensurability uh, in my evidence base. So, so if you were leaning somewhere, it'd probably be 
deistic maybe or oh well it, it would it would be just agnostic you know i i, yeah, I mean I'm between, with you, yeah between theism and, and naturalism which i take to be the two most plausible kind of worldviews on offer by theism i just mean the kind of perfect being theism where god's a necessarily existent perfect being uh, he's kind of the foundation of reality versus a kind of naturalism uh, where the only things that exist are or the only concrete things that exist at least are you know, natural concrete things and natural causal powers that they have. Now it's hard to define what we mean by natural, but it could be something like spatiotemporal, perhaps, or uh, perhaps something like physical or grounded in the physical. So that would allow for mental properties and whatnot, just as long as they are ultimately explained by physical properties. That's how Paul Draper defines it. But anyway, um, those are the two main ones that, that the two main theories that I kind of like to compare, and I'm kind of agnostic on that. Okay. Yeah, I get that. It's a pretty honest position. Um, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm one of those that, you know, I, I don't say that I have, cert I'm a Christian, but I don't have certainty. You know, mm -hmm. I, uh, I kind of lean towards like, um, a Trent Doherty type of, you know, uh, my beliefs and confidence should be, you know, proportionate to each other. So, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of ironic because I started out as a reformed epistemologist. Oh, wow. And yeah. So I was, a huge fan of Planninga. So um, I just, you know, I just didn't like the, um, it seemed like a get out of jail free card, you know, <laughs> for a lot of people who don't do their epistemic duty to, you know, be justified or have confidence in their belief. So yeah, uh, I mean, I, personally, I, I, yeah, no, personally, I do kind of fall in line with the more Doherty, Swinburne, Draper kind of approach. Um, but I reckon because my, my specialty really isn't in epistemology, so I can't really um, pick any fights with people who are uh, epistemologists who would be on the more um, reformed side or whatever. I'll just yeah. stay out of those fights. I'll be that's like, a, okay. <laughs> well, you know, and that's another thing is it, it carries the weight, you know, being reformed epistemology when it's really not even, you know, it doesn't have to do with reformed theology. So when you say reformed epistemology, immediately people are thinking pre-sup and all of this. Yeah. Um, so it carries that, you know, that kind of negative connotation with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they should they should find another name. <laughs> Maybe just call it like some kind of externalist, like externalist Christian friendly or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just an externalist, and I think that if there's an inner witness of the Holy Spirit, we can be warranted. There we yeah, go. we're done. So, <laughs> so tell us about your journey. How did uh, were you raised as a theist, Christian, or anything, or how did how did yeah. all that work? Yeah, so I was uh, raised Christian, definitely, and uh, very devout. I know some people say devote, uh, devout. I don't know. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest, so I just say, like, devout. Um, I was from a very devout home, and I, I remember praying and everything. And um, I went to uh, Christian private school, uh, K through 12, actually, K through 12th grade. So um, I've had theology classes basically, like, every day. Um, and around... Let's say, okay, so I've always been really interested in debating stuff. And um, yeah, I remember getting my first like iPod touch or something in like fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> I think it was like fourth grade. And I immediately got Instagram and I would like go on there and have like actual, like pretty deep discussions on things that were interesting to me, like abortion and other stuff at that time. Yeah. And I would like actually like, debate like random people on the internet. And I had found that, I found that super fun. I just really enjoyed debating and not like this kind of tribalistic, but actually, you know, fo focusing on the issues and whatnot. So that, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what happened with me. Except I'm a lot older than you. So <laughs> when we had AOL, 
yeah and dial up and yeah i know back in the, the telegraph you know yeah, yeah telegraph. uh no we <laughs> i just i had found myself into a chat room um and it was full of muslims and uh i didn't realize that it was a muslim chat room and that kind of you know started the journey of yep. talking to other people and debating thinking i knew everything and of course i didn't know anything yeah but exactly. so what settled you on um agnosticism just the 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 uncertainty of it um you know. that's a good question so um like i said you know fourth fifth grade i got this ipod touch and i'm really starting to get into questions about abortion and then that eventually i don't know i it led me to uh really like science and uh philosophy and these kind of bigger questions and whatnot and so in seventh or eighth grade, we started learning about evolution and I was just captivated. I was fascinated by it. Um, I, I just, I remember like looking at my hand and I was like, oh, this is the product of like hundreds of millions of years of natural selection. I thought it was so beautiful. Um, and of course I was like a theistic evolutionist. So I thought, you know, this is a clearly God guided. I remember reading the BioLogos website and Institute and whatnot, watching their videos and everything. Um, reading a book by, I think, Francis Collins. Uh, I think he was the former leader of the NIH or something, maybe NHS. Uh, it's called The Language of God. Um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, and I really I really enjoyed that book. And uh, the, again, this is seventh, eighth, eighth-ish ish, ish grade. And around ninth grade, though, I really started reflecting more on the evolutionary process, the profound suffering and languishing uh, and agony that these non-human animals experienced for hundreds of millions of years before humans ever came onto the scene, before there was anyone, it seems, that could, you know, develop their virtue based on such suffering or whatnot. Uh, and that kind of, and, and moreover, the fact that that was kind of part and parcel of God's very means by which he brought about biological diversity. Uh, these kind of, kind of rocked my boat. And so um, I probably went into a kind of phase of atheism, probably, uh, about ninth grade, uh, so that's freshman year high school. And then uh, from from atheism and naturalism, it was actually a kind of robust metaphysical naturalism because I, I like the work of Draper and yeah. uh, and Louder. Louder was popularizing. Yeah. So I definitely got into Louder, the secular outpost, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then from there, uh, probably 11th grade. So this is sophomore year of high school. I shifted back towards agnosticism. And that was a result of uh, the work of two people mainly, Alexander Proust and Josh Rasmussen, uh, they both brought me to agnosticism. I started finding uh, arguments from based on the PSR and things like that uh, for some kind of necessary foundation plausible. And so that kind of pushed me towards agnosticism. And I, I've been there ever since. So. Yeah, I did fantastic names. I mean, at least you were, you know, exposed to some fantastic philosophers to begin with. You know, by the way, I uh, actually sent Josh a message message to get him on here so josh if you're listening where you at man no I, uh yes i love Bruce. i love uh rasmussen all of them it's just you know people you know seeing josh and um you know like uh and dustin crummett and all of these young and even you man just seeing all this young talent that's uh involved in philosophy of religion it's fantastic because it's a stark contrast from my background people everybody you know people that watch it Pretty no, pretty much no mind, so I won't go over that. Uh, but um, yeah, those are some great names, uh, and and I'm to be honest with you, those are some of the things that um, I tell people quite often. Like I have a bunch of atheist friends that I hang around and stuff, and you know they just why do you why do you believe why do you believe you know? And, and based on those same arguments that you're agnostic is the reason that you know even if I wasn't a Christian, I, I think I'd be some kind of 
deist or you know pantheist or something like mm-hmm. that because uh you know they just uh, to me the arguments are just uh too convincing mm-hmm. so so what um go, coming into agnosticism uh so i see you your background was what what denomination or was were you or uh when uh, you were was- school yeah, it was Roman Catholic. Oh, okay. So that's not that bad then. That's <laughs> I say that because um, it's the conflicts, but or the you know the false dichotomy between science. And oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That 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 brought me uh, kind of through a deconstruction phase. Absolutely. Because, yeah. So it was you know because I love science. You know, and evolution is it's so obvious. You know that there's some type of evolution, and you know seeing all these different things and. Uh, I was challenged, and the more that I dug, the more that I realized that you know some of those docs. I, I was went grew up Southern Baptist. It just they weren't tenable. I mean, the theology, yeah. um, the inerrancy, the kind of things that they held to versus you know reality. It just wasn't convincing to me. That's what that's what I, I got really excited when you said that because that's what's so great about um, I don't know my upbringing. Like I'm really thankful about it because. Um, at least in general, Catholicism is very, very open to the science, science and the scientific method and what it's revealing to us. Um, and, uh, you know, they're very, I mean, they were like full blown teaching, uh, evolution in our schools. We even, we even watched uh, a debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, like, um, and this was like when it actually happened, like, uh, it, it was in like seventh grade or something or like eighth grade, I think. And we actually watched it and we had to like write a paper on it and we had to like give our own thoughts and it was just so fun. It was so great. Um, That's, yeah, you, you said it just, I just, <laughs> I remember the debate Yeah, and I just, you know, Hmm. Mama said, "If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all." So. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but at least in general, um, you know, just just the confluence of reason and faith within Catholicism—it's—it's right. it's much better than you would find in lots of other, perhaps, very fundamentalist, very literalist, very, um, you know, creationism and literalism and, and fundamental, all that sort of stuff. Like that, you just won't find that for the most part in Catholicism, and, and that's really Ab- good. So. Absolutely, and that was one of the things being more or less indoctrinated um, as a uh, fundamentalist is when I started, uh, you know, getting it, reading more about Christian. First of all, I was stunned at the intellectual richness of the history of Christianity. Yeah. You know, and the more that I looked at, you know, classical theism and orthodoxy and things of that nature, and I found out that, you know, like within the Catholic Church, they leave it open. You're allowed to have, you know, uh, you can believe in the literal six day creation. You can believe mm-hmm. in evolution. You can believe in these different things. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, and honestly, if I need, you know, commentary on something, uh, that I don't understand completely, a lot of times I'll go to, uh, a Catholic commentary or an Orthodox commentary because it's, uh, in, in most cases, they take such a practical approach to it. You know, they use common sense. They use, you know, uh, now a lot of their dogmas I don't really get into. Mm-hmm. But um, so, yeah, that was that was a cool thing. Uh, and then, you know, learning, still trying to learn Thomas Aquinas, you know, and uh, all of these ancient, you know, theologians, philosophers, things of that nature. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did really just want to say um, no, no, also, yeah, no, no. also that, the kind of fundamentalist, literalist upbringing 
that is a that's the perfect way really that you can facilitate the growth of atheism why because you have this very very uh, binary view of reality it's either this strict literalistic uh, infallible uh, six days you know all this sort of stuff it's this whole package versus that versus the outside world the atheism and so it's like once you see one aspect of this particular thing crumble well then oh then the bible's no longer totally infallible totally you know all these other sorts of things and then you become an atheist as a result of that it's precisely the binary view of reality that facilitates so much deconversion i think um whereas if you have a more uh, I guess, robust view and a more, I guess, uh, reason and faith oriented view where they're kind of a kind of integration and confluence together, you're not going to have as much of that, I think. So it's almost like they're sowing the seeds of their own demise, uh, the kind of the fundamentalist indoctrination camp. That's, that's absolutely true. And a lot of these atheists that I'm friends with, and it's quite a few of them in the chat, they uh, they came from that fundamentalist background and mm -hmm. i tell you know uh, when i you know speak with fundamentalists and, and we you know argue a little bit over scripture theology and things like that you know I, I constantly remind them you know first of all they turn me to agnosticism for a short while um but uh they're it, literally an atheist making machine because they mm -hmm. are you know they have these untenable views of the world it's so it, their approach to lit to um scripture is like you said, it, 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 it's their approach to life in the world. It's like their worldview is so binary. There's no gray area. You can't have questions. You know, you can't um, you can't go out and seek for yourself or question God or, you know, things of that nature. And it absolutely destroys people, um, which it is, you know, it, it kind of it sent me through a spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of that. So, yeah, that's an excellent point. And uh, if I have any fundamentalists, you know, watching, we love you. You know, it's just it, it's the whole structure. You know, it's not pe specific person per se or, you know, that they have this nefarious uh, agenda. So mm -hmm. I just, you know, I want them to know we're, we're not going to we didn't start the show to pick on them. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, you know, I, I watched your talks with Tomaszewski on uh, divine simplicity, which is actually a topic I've been interested in lately, and classical theism in general. And you had mentioned uh, also that um, you, your, uh, your interest is kind of in, you know, ontological modal arguments. And I'm one of those that when I first got into, you know, like uh, Anselm's, um, I was like, wow, that is like, you know, that, that, that's it. That does it. That solves it, you know? <laughs> and then you, you hear the other side and different philosophers, you're like, well, oh, crap, that didn't work yep. that well. So, <laughs> so what, when you talk, when you talk, uh, I know you do a lot about with classical theism, but when you talk about the um, modal ontological argument, is there a specific version of it that uh, you interact with the most or? Yeah. So this is, this has mainly been, uh, some stuff of like my recent, my most recent research. Uh, I mean, in addition to things on classical theism and divine simplicity and so on, uh, which I do like research in, write papers in, and, and so on. I'm also doing, getting really interested now in lots of modal ontological argument stuff. So um, I guess we could probably take a step back and, and just ask, let's break this down. Like, what do we mean by modality? What do we mean by an ontological argument? And and, and what do we mean by God here? Before, before I can sort of lay out the argument. So by modality... 
modality is just the study of uh, modes, like modes of being, like ways that things are. In, in particular, possibility, necessity, impossibility, and contingency. And so these notions are uh, interdefinable with one another. So possible, take possibility and necessity. So we can say that something is possible just in case it's not necessarily false or it's not necessarily non-existent. Um, that just means it's possibly existent or possibly true. Moreover, uh, it's also important to note that modality, these kinds of modalities can apply to statements. So something can be necessarily true, like one plus one equals two, uh, or they can also apply to beings or like objects or things. And so for instance, I presumably am not a necessary being or a necessary object because I could have failed to be. I could have not existed. My parents might have never met, say. So uh, these kinds of modalities, possibility, necessity, impossibility, contingency, these apply both to statements and beings. Uh, and so, like I said, I was talking about how these are interdefinable. So, you know, something is possible if it's not necessarily false or not necessarily non-existent, and something is necessary uh, just in case it's not possibly false. That is to say, it's necessarily true, right? Or, or it's not possibly non-existent. And that just means it must exist. It cannot fail to exist. So uh, those are the kinds of, or th that's really what modality concerns itself with. Now, there are three different kinds of, uh, I guess, possibility that, that we really need to disentangle well, if we want to. Let me, let me, yeah, let me, I'm, I'm kind of a, a layman. So, uh, I mean, I understand uh, it, this is one of the areas that I've done mm -hmm. a lot. So I just want to kind of break it down a little bit. That's good. That's easier for some of the people in the audience. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, I'm going to oversimplify it, but. When we're talking about, um, you know, modal logic, uh, you have, you know, possibility, like he said, you've got possibility, you have necessity, um, and you have impossibility. So uh, when we use terms like contingency and things like that, basically contingency is, it, it means it's not necessarily true um, or necessarily false. So when we talk about something that's necessarily true, that means it is that way and has to be that way. And um, uh, possibility would be that it's it could be false or it could be true. So that's uh, I hope I cleared that up for some of the people that's, you know, in the audience. But yeah. uh, go ahead with the with the second part. Yeah, no, I mean, we, you get into the weeds really quickly. Um, yes. but, yeah. So there are three kind. before we can understand really the ontological argument, we have to distinguish between three different kinds of possibility like what can be the case. So the first kind is logical possibility. So logical possibility just means consistency. It's kind of like consistency of the logical form of, of some proposition, say. So for instance, if I say that water is not H2O, strictly speaking, that is consistent, right? There's no like formal contradiction merely that you can that you can deduce from the structure of that proposition, like X is Y, there's no contradiction there. So it's logically possible. Uh, and so really logical possibility is a matter of not entailing or involving a strict contradiction in logical form, in the structure or form or syntactical uh, you know, arrangement of the proposition in question. So something that would be logically impossible would be if you said something like, I both exist and don't exist. So that's something that's that's logically impossible because the form of that, that proposition, P and not P, well, that, that can't be true because that violates the law of non-contradiction. So that's one kind of possibility, logical possibility. It concerns consistency. 
Another kind of possibility, and this will become the most important for the ontological argument, is metaphysical possibility. And so it's, it's hard to define, but <laughs> roughly, it's, it, you can think of it as what genuinely could have been the case, what genuinely could have obtained in reality. So go back to my example of water is not H2O. That was logically possible, but that's not metaphysically possible because by its very nature, water is H2O. Water is identical with H2O. So there is no possible way that reality could be. Reality just couldn't be such that you have something that's water, but it's not H2O. Like, it just wouldn't be water. Wow. Um, and, and so, it, again, it's difficult to, to define, and there are different accounts of metaphysical possibility. But, but you can kind of think of it as, like, n something has to be meta met logically possible to be metaphysically possible. So it obviously has to be consistent. But... There's also, you have to like respect the natures of things as well. So like you have to respect the nature of water if you want something to be metaphysically possible. That, that statement about water is not H2O, that violates the very nature of water. And so that would not be metaphysically possible. So again, for the audience, metaphysical possibility, just think of it as what genuinely could have obtained in reality. Um, yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a good, I think that's a good um, simplification of it. So, and that's the thing, you know, with metaphysics, you know, if someone doesn't have, um, you know, an understanding of the background with metaphysics, uh, with, you know, starting with the ancient philosophers, it's really going to be hard to convey. And it's not one of these things that, you know, you hear people say, well, if you really understand it, you could explain it well. Well, it's just not that simple when it comes to <laughs> metaphysics. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but just be clear on this point. So, um, logical uh, possibility is required. But metaphysical possibility is debatable, would be, I think, is where I would put it. Uh, when someone says that something is uh, logically possible, you know, that's uh, kind of, you know, true on the surface of it. It's a low yeah. bar. It's a low yeah, bar yeah, exactly. for logical exactly. possibility. You just so need you, consistency. Yeah. So once you get there, most people don't argue with that unless you're you know, maybe a dialetheist or something but when you get so when you get to metaphysical possibility that's where in philosophy a lot of people you have to roll up your sleeves right that's yeah. we start to kind of get dirty you know yeah. right there so yeah right, and then there's, there's one other form of possibility that's really important to keep in mind and to disentangle from the other the other ones and that's epistemic possibility and so that just essentially means something is epistemically possible just in case it's consistent with what you know about the actual world so for all I know, X might be the case. That's what it means for X to be epistemically possible. So for all I know, Goldbach's conjecture, which says that I think that's every even is the sum of two primes or something like that. Um, but, but for all I know, Goldbach's conjecture might be true. For all I know, it might be false. Uh, for, for those who don't know, mathematicians have not been able to prove that yet. Um, we've run through lots of examples, and it, it does seem true up to like a number of examples, but um, there's no proof of it yet. And People are like actively look, looking for a proof, I believe. Um, so for all we know, it could be true, but it also could be false. It's like consistent with what we know. But like, because it's a mathematical theorem, it would just be like the Pythagorean theorem. Metaphysically speaking, it would be metaphysically necessarily true if it's true at all. And it would be metaphysically necessarily false if it's false at all. So it's like, it doesn't even leave, it doesn't leave like open this kind of, 
uh, uncertainty that we have, because the uncertainty that we have, that that's the more epistemic side of things. It might be true for all that we know, it might not be true. So in some sense, it's possibly true, but possibly false, but that's an epistemic possibility. In reality, it's metaphysically necessary either way. It couldn't, it's not like it could be true in one world, but false in another world. Right. So it's really, uh, oftentimes when people hear the modal ontological argument and they, they, they hear the first premise, which we're gonna get to really soon, that possibly God exists, they think, okay, fine, like, yeah, I guess it's consistent with all that I know about the world that God could exist. Like, you know, I'm not, I don't have like a proof that God doesn't exist, or, you know? So they're thinking epistemically, but right. that's not that's not what you need for the modal ontological argument. You need to show that it's metaphysically possible. That is, um, you know, and that is a very, very important distinction mm -hmm, because yeah. um, I still see even professional philosophers today, uh, you know, conflate yes. um, epistemology and ontology. And I have had so many, um, you know, discussions with people. Well, well, what does that mean? What is? That? I'm like, wait a minute. We're we're in ontology. We're not in mm -hmm. epistemology. You know, that's so. I think that's a very fantastic uh, distinction there to add the, you know, the uh, the epistemo epistemological <laughs> um, part to it because mm -hmm. it, it is very important for people to understand that you know. Um, there's a time for the epistemology. There's a place for the epistemology. But when we're talking about ontology, we're not talking about things that we know and how we know it. We're talking about, you know, what basically what underlies reality, mm -hmm. what, what underlies being itself. Yeah, what 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 reality genuinely could have been and not merely what is consistent with what I know about reality and like how confident I am and that sort of stuff. Like we're talking right. about in extra mental reality, how could things have been? Not how, right. like, for all I know, it might be this way or it might be that way, so. Yeah. Okay, so okay. that's that's the three modal distinctions uh, that I really wanted to, to, to bring out. And then uh, before we get into uh, the modal ontological argument, we need to briefly consider possible worlds, uh, the definition of God, and then what an ontological argument is. So I'll be brief on these. Good luck with that. <laughs> so possible worlds, um, as I use it, this is just a kind of so, so okay so you can you could talk about the semantics of possible worlds like what do we mean by that um so by possible worlds i use it as a mere heuristic device so i'm not saying that there really are these existing things out there called possible worlds i'm not committing to that i'm just using it as a kind of semantic device a heuristic device to help us get a, a grip on what we're saying when we say that God is possible or that God is necessary. So possible would be something is possible if it exists in at least one possible world. And it's necessary if it exists or is true in all possible worlds. Uh, and, and correspondingly, it would be impossible if it exists in no possible worlds uh, and, and so on. So that's what I mean by possible world. But, but what is a possible world? Well, roughly speaking, it's just a total or complete or global or maximal way that reality as a whole could have been. So um, yeah, basically like the actual world is one possible world, but presumably had I sneezed three seconds ago, um, the, the world configuration would have been different, like different truths would have been actual. And so we, in some sense that would have been, a, that could have been the actual world, but it's a different possible world. One with the same history as the actual world, but one wherein I actually sneezed at that time. And perhaps the future is really, really similar, but it's still a different possible world. Right. So, and, and so again, this is a heuristic device. So that's possible worlds. Uh, the second thing is what is an ontological, well, I guess, well, okay, what is an ontological argument? Roughly, it's a kind of armchair argument. You can sit back in your armchair and you can reason 
from your armchair, from the principles of your own mind and your thinking and your rational thought, that God exists purportedly uh, on the basis of an ontological argument. So you can think of it as an a priori proof or an a priori argument. A priori, that's just a fancy word, meaning that the justification for the premises does not rely on things of your experience. So it, it, the justification for the premises is independent of uh, what you can experience of the world. And so that's really what we mean by a priori. And usually it's the argument, an ontological argument is based on considerations of like God's nature or God's de like the definition of God, and perhaps like the nature of existence, the nature of greatness, uh, and the nature of possibility and necessity. So that's what an ontological argument is. And finally, God, what do we mean by God? So in this context, we just mean, uh, I guess, three things, pretty much. God is an ultimate reality. So he is kind of that most fundamental thing, that, that ultimate, that independent foundational layer of reality, uh, this, this foundational being. Secondly, God is a necessary being. So God exists in all possible worlds. He cannot fail to exist. He has a robust grip on existence. And then thirdly, uh, God is perfect. So we mean a necessarily existent, perfect, ultimate being. Uh, and, and what do you mean by perfect? Well, it's kind of like he's the greatest possible being. He, uh, as Anselm famously said, he's that than which none greater can be conceived even. Uh, so he's, he's kind of axiologically supreme or, or complete. Uh, he has perfect knowledge, perfect power, perfect goodness, and so on. So, so yeah. on that note, why would it require perfection? Do you mean the definition of God? Yes. Why Why does God have to embody perfection? Because that's usually, you know, one of the pushbacks I get on it, you know, is, uh, I mean, I have an answer for it, but I want to hear, you know, what, how you would answer, why does God need to be perfect? So there are kind of two ways that I can go responding to that. One way is to say, like, listen, what do we mean by a God? A God is something that is a being that is wholly worthy of worship. And so, anything less than perfect is just not worthy of worship. Like you wouldn't worship, um, I don't know, Shaquille O'Neal or something just because he's really, really good, but he's not perfect. Like, no, something has to be perfect. I don't know. I like Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> <laughs> so something, something cannot fall short of perfection uh, if it's to be worthy, truly worthy of our worship and our reverence and whatnot. So that's one way to go from worthiness of worship. And that's just constitutive of what we mean by God, just worthy of worship. A second thing that I want to say is like, I can just stipulate this as my definition, right? Definitions, we can stipulate things. So oh. I can just run my argument and say, listen, what I mean by God here, I'm just stipulating that it's a necessary, perfect, ultimate being. That's what I mean. Now let's talk about the argument. So, yeah, so those are the clarifying two ways. Clarifying it for the argument, absolutely. Yeah. And that's actually one of the angles that, you know, I normally take. Uh, one of the ways I also answer it is, you know, I uh, would would God would be like the exemplar of, you know, what things are aimed at. You know, when we talk about love, when we talk about these attributes that we normally say are positive things or good things, you know, um, he would be the embodiment of what the perfect level of what those things are. So, mm -hmm. but anyways, go ahead. I don't want to keep cutting you yeah, off. No, no, just, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's just, I know there's questions like flying through people's head. And they're just no, well, yeah, I mean, people like, we have to do a lot of stage setting because you, yes. know, you can't just like throw someone into the weeds and be like, possibly like in some possible world there's this maximum right. great perfect being, and it's like and they'll, they're going to get like necessary and they're going to think like epistemic possibility metaphysical possibility they're gonna be like what's an ontological argument so like you have to lay the groundwork right philosophy That's is best done slowly 
Absolutely. So. That is so, I mean, I'm going to highlight that and that's going to be, that's going to be a clip on my show. Because, <laughs> you know, when I hear people say, oh, the ontological argument, oh, that's garbage. That's been answered over and over. And I'm like, just what? You know, <laughs> so I'm looking at these things and I'm like, okay, there are good, you know, there are good objections to certain things, but it's not garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you, usually when someone says, uh, like, you know, I hear about Craig or planning uh, or these different theistic philosophers and they're they're just like, oh, it's trash. His argument's trash. And I'm like, what? What? How could, <laughs> you know, that's that would be like me coming in as a theist saying that Graham Oppie's just uh, yeah, that's trash. Yeah. I'd never do that ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so but go, anyway, go ahead and finish. up. Yeah, no. And, and I, I should say uh, just, I guess, two further notes before we get on to the actual argument is like ontological argument like that's you know that's kind of misleading because well a lot of people think that oh well you know ontological arguments just this one thing but no they're actually like tons of different versions and variations and they're completely different arguments really i mean they share this kind of common thread of being armchair a priori that i was talking about and being based perhaps on the nature of perfection or possibility or existence uh, or god's definition but but they they're very different from one another. So you can find ontological arguments, for instance, in Spinoza, and it's different from Descartes' ontological arguments, different from, uh, you know, Anselm's ontological arguments, different from Planning's, different from Malcolm's, different from this, you know, you can, and different from Gödel's, and so on. Like, you can go on and on. There are these different versions of the ontological argument, and papers, I should, I should, people should be aware of this, papers are being published talking back and forth on ontological arguments, like every philosophical quarterly like that comes out like usually there's one or more one or more papers on ontological arguments um developing either a new one or uh responding to other ones or criticizing it or bringing up a new point in the debate so these things are live discussions that are going on in philosophy that's not to say all the all the uh the arguments that have been defended in the past under ontological arguments are defended today like most people think that descartes uh, his ontological argument doesn't work most people nowadays um think that you can reformulate Anselm's in an in interesting way, but his first ontological argument at least doesn't work. Most, most philosophers today think that's true and so on. But, but my point is just that for the audience, these things are actively being debated by professional philosophers on both sides, even to this day. So, um, yeah, don't don't yeah, write it off. Yeah. And with, without getting into the weeds of it, I mean, uh, you know, modal arguments or, or modal uh, logic um, is not just a theistic thing. It's... Um, I mean, we use, you know, the modal logic is used for a lot of, yeah, you know, yeah. different areas. So it's not just like this type of logic that was developed to, you know, prove God or something like yeah. that. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. So like this is developed by people like Kripke and other sorts of people right. way back. And uh, <laughs> I say way back. Way back, yeah. <laughs> it's the 20th century. <laughs> it's like mid to late 20th century. Anyway, Um that's old, yeah, that's, that's old for me, but and no, uh, but yeah, yeah, you bring up absolutely. a point where like th- this modal logic is developed independently, completely independently of philosophy of religion, um, and it can be, it can be, and has been used across a whole host of domains. So you, again, like you said, it's not like people just coming up with stuff right. to, try to prove God. And, um, now, yeah. there are a lot of people that would push back on you know S five logic. Uh, yeah, which is, we should probably briefly touch on that. So, yeah, so uh, that, the modal, yeah, the modal ontological argument that uh, I'll just be briefly summarizing uh, in in about like. <laughs> Uh, 90 seconds or something, um, (laughs) relies on this uh, system of modal logic. The system, so, okay, so a system of modal logic is essentially, it's a system of axioms that try to formalize or rigorously capture 
the kind of metaphysical possibility that I was talking about at the beginning. So we're trying to come up with different axioms that relate these different notions of possibility with one another uh, and, and trying to really systematize, formalize, and make rigorous our notion of metaphysical possibility. So for instance, you'll have an axiom like, like the distribution axiom. So if, uh, if it's necessarily the case that A entails B, well then, if it's necessarily the case that A, well, then it's necessarily the case that B. So like that, that seems just obvious. And so a lot of these axioms are going to be uh, argued for and whatnot. But system S5 is, uh, one, is one of the stronger versions um, uh, of, of modal logic of the systems in question. And it incorporates the axioms that are beneath it. So that would be like um, S4 and other sorts of things. And the S5 axiom, which is distinctive to the X5 system, which is used in the, the modal ontological argument, is that whatever is possibly necessarily the case is just necessarily the case simpliciter. So I'm going to repeat that for the audience. Whatever is possibly necessarily the case is just necessarily the case simpliciter, full stop. Uh, and, and really, this just, you can think of, um, modality in the range of possible worlds under S5 as kind of like a mansion. So you can think of the rooms within the mansion as different possible worlds. And according to S5, you can go from any room in the mansion to any other room. So pick any room you want. Maybe it's on the first floor, maybe it's on the 12th floor or whatever. There is a way that you can get to every other room in the mansion. And uh, so you, they're, they're like accessible from your own room. Uh, and that that applies to all the different rooms in question. All of them are accessible from all the others, and all the and so they can all access one another. And so that's really how uh, system S five conceives of worlds and possibility. Right. So if something is possible in one possible world, well then it's possible in all the possible worlds. Uh, so if, if something is possible, well then it's necessarily possible. Uh, and moreover, if something is necessarily the case in one world, well that just means its necessity bleeds out to all the other worlds. Because if you go to that world. That means that that thing is necessary in that world because it's possibly necessary. And if it's necessary in that world, well, then from the perspective of that world, that that thing holds in all possible worlds. But remember, all possible worlds in, in the mansion analogy, that's going to be all the rooms, including your own room. So then it's going to be necessarily true in all the all the worlds, including the actual world. So you can think of uh, the system S5 and how it captures or articulates metaphysical possibility in terms of that mansion. And so if something's possible, it's going to be necessarily possible. Uh, that's like if, if, um, uh, if, uh, if there's a room in the mansion, well, then it can be reached by all the rooms in the mansion. Uh, and then if it's possibly necessary, well, then it's just necessary simpliciter. So uh, if it could be the case that uh, it holds in all, something is, holds in all the rooms, well, then it's actually the case that it holds in all the rooms. So uh, that is enough by way of preliminaries. And now we can get on there to we the go. argument. Yeah, now we go over the argument. That's <laughs> yes. I, so, I should say, well, I, well, one final thing. I should say that not all philosophers are on board with S5. Right. But a, a large number are. And it's defended completely independently of the modal ontological argument. Um, and it's respectable. It's developed by analytic philosophers completely prior to any reflections on the modal ontological argument. It's respectable. It's defended by metaphysicians. A lot of people think it accurately captures metaphysical modality. But there is controversy there. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely. To... I, I think it's uh, Rasmussen's uh, contingency argument is mm -hmm. uh, reliant on uh, S5 logic. Yes. So he gives, he gives a brief um, defense of, you know, S5 logic on that one too. So, mm -hmm. all right. So for everybody that's following, 
we we've we've defined God. Um, he's explained, uh, you know, what modal logic is, how we deal with modality, the different kinds of possibility, right? Different types of possibilities. Um, this is, uh, you know, it's part of the S five logic system is uh, what it's this particular argument is utilizing. Um, which is controversial uh, in academia, you know. So, uh, and on that, now he will present his awesome knockdown argument. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, okay. So, um, this is just a simplified version of it. And, yeah, like I said, I, I, or I, didn't, I didn't come up with this. I'm just conveying it from Alvin Plantinga. And this right. is a really simplified. The version. This is the best way to present it, I think. Um, so, it's just one premise, <laughs> and then you get the conclusion. So, here's the one premise. Possibly God exists conclusion two therefore god exists so so how does that follow okay remember s5 s5 says that if something's possibly necessary well then it's necessary so and remember our definition of god this is why we laid those foundations earlier remember our definition of god god mm -hmm. is a necessary being so by saying that possibly god exists we're saying that possibly there is this necessarily existent perfect ultimate being but that means that it's possibly necessarily the case that there is such a being. But at by S5, whatever is possibly necessary is just necessary simpliciter. Yeah. So it's just necessary that, that this being exists. And if it's necessary that this being exists, well, then obviously it actually exists. Wow. Uh, so, uh, so you can deduce using S5 and the definition of God that I was talking about earlier from the mere possibility, and remember, this is metaphysical possibility. We're not talking about epistemic possibility. We're talking right. about metaphysical possibility. If it's metaphysically possible that God exists, it simply follows that God exists. And so the first premise says, yes, it is indeed true that God possibly exists. And so conclusion, God exists. So that's the argument. So so we're done. Goodbye. Everyone. No, I'm that's kidding. It. Hey, we've he solved it. Everything's done. There's no sense even being here and discussing it. <laughs> <laughs> so what objections do you have to it? Ooh, okay. So I kind of want to give the lay of the land before uh, giving my okay, own objections. <laughs> so one kind of objection that people give is just an objection based on incoherence arguments. So they say, well, no, you gave me this notion of God with like perfect knowledge, perfect power. He's perfectly free. He's perfectly rational. He's necessarily existent. Um, that actually isn't possible because it's incoherent. There's some kind of internal incoherency there. So this is perhaps we can call it the incoherence response. There's also, a, you can give a response along the lines of a tension response. So you could say, okay, maybe it's not incoherent, but it seems to be in tension with, let's say, for example, lots of seemingly gratuitous or pointless sufferings in the world, like a fawn dying in the forest fire. And if it seems in tension with that, well then uh, we can say, if it's intention there, well, then based on that evidence, we can think that it's probably not actual. And if it's probably not actual, well, then it's possibly false. You know, you can say that if it's not actual, well, then it's clearly possibly not the case because whatever is actual is possible. And if it's possibly not the case, well, then just by S5, you can run the argument in reverse and get that um, if it's possibly not the case that God exists, well, then it's necessarily not the case. Because again, God is a necessary being. So under S5, he's either existing in all possible worlds or in no possible worlds. There's no in-between. Uh, and so that's an incoherence argument response or a tension argument response. Uh, we're just going to focus on the incoherence one. So what might people say on behalf of this? Well, they might say, oh, well, look, God is supposed to be free, but if he's morally perfect, he can't sin. And so uh, he, he, he can't do this. He's not free to sin. And so how, what do you mean he's free? I mean, he's supposed to be morally perfect. So, that, you know, they might say that there's some kind of incoherence there. I'm not defending these, these things, I'm just articulating them. So that's one, maybe another one they might say, well, listen, 
God's supposed to be infallibly omniscient. But then, like, he already knows what actions he's going to perform. And so how could then he be free to, like, refrain from performing them? It would seem as though he would have, like, if he had the ability to do otherwise, well, then he would have had the ability to, like, either make him mistaken in his prior belief, say, or make it be such the case that his prior belief was false. But, you know, intuitively, people think that the past is fixed. You can't, like, alter the past. Um, Like, there's no use crying over spilled milk. So, uh, and and there are different ways you can formalize this and, and, you know, but, but this kind of incoherence argument says that you can't have both a free being that acts freely, uh, and an infallibly omniscient being because infallible omniscience, uh, is going to preclude that kind of, uh, that kind of freedom. And again, I'm not, I'm not defending these arguments. Uh, and then I guess the final, the final, I'm just gesturing towards incoherence arguments. The final incoherence argument that I want to pinpoint is like, uh, you could say, if God is ultimate, God's supposed to be the ground of everything distinct from him. Uh, he's supposed to be the, you know, that that's just what we mean by ultimacy. Like God is ultimate. He's supposed to be the explanation of all other things apart from himself. But God presumably has distinct properties like um, omnipotence and omniscience and whatnot. So then that would seem to mean that, and these are essential to God. So that would seem to mean that if God is the ground of everything distinct from God, it would seem that God would have to be the ground of his own essential properties. But so the argument goes, nothing could be the ground of its own essential properties, because like, in order for something to ground another thing, it would like already, as it were, have to exist, and hence have the features that are essential for its existence, right? Uh, grounding is a kind of priority relation. And right. so if X grounds Y, well then X is, X's existence is in some sense prior to Y. But in that case, whatever is essential for X's existence is also prior to Y. So then we get the, we get the, the absurdity that God, God's essential features are prior to God's essential features, which is absurd, if God grounds God's uh, properties. Now, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll just leave it there. Th- those are incoherence-type arguments. So, so, But couldn't that be, couldn't you escape that with the divine simplicity? Where... Then they're going to go on to say that that itself is incoherent. <laughs> so, so that, that yeah, you are okay. correct that that's one way so that you could They would it. go to some type of modal collapse or... You something. could, well, yeah, you could go, you could run a bunch of different arguments okay. there. But th- that, you are right that that argument assumed that divine simplicity is false. But then they would just say either divine simplicity is true or it's false. If it's true, you get this worry that God's supposed to be grounding God's essential properties. And then they're going to argue that that might not be the case. Now, I'm skeptical that that succeeds but but we can set that aside Uh, and then you could say okay if it's true then you know you get this absurdity but if it's false sorry if it's false if divine simplicity is false you get this absurdity that god would have to ground god's parts excuse me and then um if it's true well then you get the absurdities that are attendant with divine simplicity so the argument would go and so either way whether god's simple or not you get this incoherence and so you get the incoherence type argument running Again, for the audience, I'm not defending these arguments. I, I can hear people like just screaming at me and they're like, Joe is, <laughs> Joe is like, no, I'm not defending these arguments here. I'm just articulating them. Yeah, yeah, I'm giving you a sense of the incoherence arguments that people level as a response to the first premise of the modal ontological argument. Right. So don't crucify me, people. <laughs> so where, how would we get from um, the metaphysical necessity? or possibility to the epistemic where, how do we bridge um, epistemology with um, the necessity of God uh, metaphysically? That is, that is such a great question. That, that 
that kind of asks, how do we know that that first premise is, is true? Like, uh, you know, sure, it might like it might be the case for all I know, God might exist. But how do we go from there to the actual metaphysical claim that God possibly exists? Like, after all, I gave that argument and I never justified that first premise. I never gave any reasons for it. So here are some that try to bridge that gap. Uh, one thing you might think is like, uh, conceivability is, you might say, is at least somewhat of a reliable guide to possibility claims. So if I can conceive of something, that gives me reason for thinking that it's metaphysically possible. So for instance, I mean, just think about normal cases. Like I think that I could have, as a metaphysical possibility, I could have failed to exist because my parents could never have met. Well, why do I think that? It's not because it's actually the case. <laughs> That's certainly wow. not, not the reason why I think that. Well, what is the reason? I mean, it's like it didn't actually happen. So like, how am I supposed to know this? Well, some philosophers think that um, we're justified in thinking that precisely because I can like coherently think and conceive of a situation in which my parents never met. Like maybe, maybe my father just wasn't into brunettes or like, I don't know, like <laughs> we're getting a little weird now, but um, I can easily conceive and flesh out a coherent situation in my mind. Uh, and that is going to be giving me, so these philosophers argue, some, some weight of a reason to think that such a situation would indeed be metaphysically possible because it's conceivable. I can kind of work out the details in my mind. Oh, Incoherent with that. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be nothing wrong or incoherent about that, that kind of worked out situation. And so the fact that we can conceive it like that, we can work out the scenario, we don't see any inconsistencies that crop up, we don't, and it, we can like fully flesh it out, that's gonna give us some weight of a reason to think that it's metaphysically possible. So that's one way that you could do it. There are other ways as well. They get really complicated because we're talking about modal epistemology here. Right. <laughs> and so modal epistemology is really kind of how you bridge that, that gap from, right. um, from the actual world and what we know about it to our justified beliefs about metaphysical necessity and possibility. So that's one way. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that goes a little bit to show you. Yeah, it's, you said justified. I, my brain's like going all over the place now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's yeah. every time I hear, you know, uh, when I talk with people who aren't, you know, familiar with, um, you know, epistemology and they, you know, they say, well, how do you justify that? And I'm like, oh, well, how much time do you have? How familiar yeah. are you with justifications? Yeah, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. So, what is what is it about the ontological argument that that or or ontological arguments um, that kind of piques your interest? Is it is it just ontology in general, or what piques my interest is this objection, and it's it's a good objection, and the ways that people have tried to avoid the objection are fascinating to me. So, so let, let's get that objection on the table. So, so, so far I've just looked at the kind of incoherence objection uh, as well as the kind of tension objection of the problem of evil one and, and so on. But here's the, here's the biggest objection really. And, and this isn't like new to me or anything like philosophers know about this. The objection is just a symmetrical argument. Um, listen, the first argument, the, the, the argument that I gave said one, possibly God exists, therefore God exists. Well, here's a symmetrical argument. Possibly God doesn't exist. Therefore God doesn't exist. That also follows by S5 logic. Like the, the, the second, the, the conclusion does follow from that first premise by S5 because God's a necessary being. And so by S5, he either exists in all the worlds or none of the worlds. Um, right. There's no in between. And so if it's at least possible that he exists in one world, he's gonna exist in all. But if it's also possible that he exists, or sorry, if it's possible he that he doesn't exist in one world, 
well, then he's not going to exist in any. <laughs> so because you've got this total bifurcation, he's either in all of them or in none of them. And so if you can find at least one that he isn't that's in, right. it simply right. follows. Yeah, it simply follows that he's not in any. And so that just seems like a perfectly symmetrical premise. And by symmetry here, I just mean like it seems on epistemic par with the other one. Like we have just as much a reason to accept one as the other, just independent of other considerations. Like um, if I say, you know, possibly X and you say, po well, possibly not X. Like there, there, there's a symmetry there. We don't have any principled, non-arbitrary, non-question begging reason to favor one over the other or at the expense of the other. It would just be like, <laughs> it'd be like foot stomping or something. You're just, you're privileging one at the expense of the other for no principled reason. And they, so they seem symmetrical. They seem on par and yet they deliver the incompatible result. And so uh, what this objection says, we just, the arguments are awash. Like the original argument doesn't give you any reason to believe in God because you have this symmetri symmetrical argument that totally cancels it out. And so we're right back where we started with no successful argument for God's existence. So that's, that's the objection. And uh, so that that would be the reverse ontological. Yeah, that's the, that's the reverse ontological argument. Now, what do you do in the literature now? Now you start to look for what's called a symmetry breaker. A symmetry breaker tries to, well, do, do what it sounds like. It breaks that symmetry between the possibility premise of the original argument that possibly God exists and the possibility premise of the reverse argument that possibly God doesn't exist. So you're looking for a symmetry breaker, something that favors one possibility premise at the expense of the other. So some consideration that gives us reason to think that possibly, yeah, God, possibly God does exist, which doesn't also support the reverse claim that possibly God doesn't exist. So that's called a symmetry breaker. And that's where the literature has focused on and it kind of exploded. <laughs> and it, right. it's, it's that, and like you were asking me that question, what makes me interested in this? Uh, that that's what makes me interested in it. I love talking about and thinking about symmetry breakers. And um, I just think it gets us into so many fun questions about epistemology and ontology. And it like brings together so many different considerations from so many different fields that I just love thinking about the symmetry breakers. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on there. My, um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of my theology lacks because I spent so much time with, you know, epistemology and ontology and formal logic and things like that. I just, you know, I'm a structure minded kind of person. So, you know, when I it, when you can combine math, you know, with uh, reality, words, you know, phrases, I've actually been doing a lot of uh, studying lady lately in um, uh, semantics and pragmatics, you know, because we so many, uh, it, which is what I love about uh, everything, every video that I've watched of yours where you have talked about an argument or something like that. You're very careful to put the underlying uh, information there. You, mm -hmm. What your definitions are clearly, concisely, this is the paradigm we're working from. This yeah. is because I hear people say, oh, we're just arguing semantics. Well, that's the crux of the matter. We the semantics is what's important. The pragmatics of it, you know. The, you know, uh, for those who aren't familiar with this, semantics is um, the meaning of what someone says. So you have the um, syntax is when it's is the order in in how it's put together. Is it properly put together? And then you have semantics of what does that order mean, you know, based on, and then the pragmatics is what does the person talking about it mean? You know, so, and a lot of times people were just arguing semantics. No, yeah. That's where we're at, you know, because, and we do, and I'm guilty of it myself. I've been in a couple of debates and um, you know, 
lined out definitions of what I was talking about, but I didn't go through the structure of what I was talking about and how I was applying it and the paradigm and things. So I think that is a extremely, you know, important when we have these discussions. Yeah, I mean, I'm just imagining if I just went at the start and I just said, there's some possible world in which God exists, therefore God exists, boom. And like, everyone would be like, well, what's, a what's a possible world? What is possibility? What do you mean by God? Like, you need to get that stuff down at the beginning and you need to lay the framework because that's so essential. That's how you do philosophy and it needs to be done right. slowly. And that's, that's where we, you know, falter a lot um, in general conversations um, philosophers or not, is um, we don't ask, what do you mean by that? We don't ask things like that. We take our understanding <laughs> we just and assume. we apply it. You know, yeah. so then you end up with stuff like, oh, ontological arguments are terrible. You know, and it's just like, oh, I just, you know, <laughs> when I, you know, hear stuff like that, now I'm not, unless you are really into metaphysics, you know, in modal logic and things of that nature, it isn't convincing at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, and I wouldn't even say it's real convincing at that level, but there's a lot more discussion with it, like you were talking about. This isn't something that's just blown over. This is, it's very important in philosophy. You know, we, it's something that's hashed out all the time and people are still working with it and interacting with it, you know? So yeah, at the lay level, you know, they're just like, Oh, it's just, what about the perfect Island? You know, you're just like, you know, and it just, and I'm a, you know, I'm a dummy because I get involved with it and I try to explain <laughs> concepts that aren't easily explainable in a short amount of time. So, but uh, yeah, man, I appreciate the way that you, uh, uh, laid it all out, you know, working with the paradigms that we're working with the um, objections to it, because I, I'm I'm kind of like you um, with the, you know, how do we deal with the reverse ontological argument? You know, it uh, on the face of it, um, it seems, you know, to be pretty rock solid objection. You know, I have my own opinions about it. Uh, but they're probably less informed than yours, so I'm more <laughs> interested in yours. So given the symmetry, uh, is this something that you've written on or? Um... Uh, well, yes and no. So uh, yes and no. So like I have, well, right now I have one paper under review on on one particular symmetry breaker. And over the summer, well, sort of over the summer, sort of right now, uh, I'm working on a paper on one of Josh Rasmussen's symmetry breakers. Um, I love Josh, like with all my heart, but I'm going to be criticizing one of his uh, symmetry breakers. It's a new oh, symmetry yeah. breaker that he gives, and um, I'm going to be criticizing it because I do not think it succeeds. And uh, I'm thinking also about uh, writing a paper on one of Proust's symmetry breakers as well, and I've already got the outline of, of that one. So yes and no in the sense that I haven't published on it okay. yet. I've published on classical theism a lot so far um, and, and other arguments for God's existence. Uh, but this one, hopefully, fingers crossed in the coming months, I'll have some publications on it because I have at least one under review on it. So, All right. Oh, rock on. That's sweet. Yeah, that's a, you, you got to criticize Josh. I mean, that just, you know, <laughs> he's too nice. He's too yeah. sweet. <laughs> and uh, criticism is the love language for philosophers. So That's right. Absolutely. It means, it means you care about them. You yes. know? So, uh, in the chat, we have Spartan Theology, and he actually had Josh on his show um, talking about uh, universalism and... Uh, you know, it's he's one of those guys, man. It just you, you can't not like him. I know, you know? <laughs> because he is brilliant, 
but he's also very humble. Yes. He's very, uh, it's like Oppie, you know, I mean, I just, if you don't like Graham Oppie, something's wrong with you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> people, people don't know, but he's like such a gentleman. Like oh, he, he will help you so much <laughs> if you I, just like politely ask. He's such a helper. It's unbelievable. And not only that, as brilliant as he is, when I watched the exchange between him and Loke, you know, and Loke went through, uh, you know, this massive amount of premises, you know, and then and then Graham responds with, so we have these arguments and every time we have these arguments, you know, then you justify your premises and I'm not going to accept your premises. And basically in a nutshell, in the kindest way possible, he says, let's cut through the BS. Where is our disagreement? Let's deal with that. You know, yeah. and I just I was just like cheering him on. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like Loke. I really do like Loke, too. Um, but I was kind of like, yeah, there you go. Let's let's get to the heart of the matter. But um, yeah, that was a fun exchange. So, mm-hmm. um, so I usually try to keep it around, you know, about an hour. You know, I'm I'm ADHD, so I assume everybody else is. And <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is there um, any anything else that you wanted to add to it, or any objections you wanted to? No, I mean, I, I want people to know that, you know, there's a big literature here and there are lots of different symmetry breakers and you can actually propose them for either argument. Uh, most, of, most of it's been focused on, most of the literature has been focused on symmetry breaking in favor of the original argument. Um, I think it's still an open question. Uh, for the state of the literature, I think it's still an open question as to whether or not any of them succeed. Uh, and you'll find philosophers defending both sides. And so this is something that if people are interested in, they can, they can look into it. And um, one place to start that's a really good introduction uh, just came out. It's cheap. It's by Cambridge. It's, it's by Cambridge Elements series. It's Tyron Goldschmidt's um, book on ontological arguments. It's really short. The Cambridge Elements series is like kind of like a summary series. Um, the books are like usually really, really short. They're like 60 pages to like 60 to 70 to 80 pages usually. And it gives a tremendous summary of ontological arguments from the history to today. It talks about the modal ontological argument and different potential symmetry breakers. Uh, that's, that's the best place to start for people who want to dig into this further. Um, but yeah, always, always question, always keep thinking, always keep learning and uh, always appreciate the majesty of reason. So. Absolutely. That's a, uh, I love uh, one of my uh, go-to or used to be go-tos was um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Carnides.org on. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Stay skeptical, everybody. Stay skeptical. That's right. It was because I am, even though I'm a theist, I'm skeptical by nature. You know, I'm um, you know, I, like I was talking about, you know, with certainty and how much mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as justification and what I believe and, you know, the confidence in that um, it's, you know, I just I, I think that I think there's a healthy dose of skepticism. I I think sometimes people are overly skeptic, you know, yeah. um, and if I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Liz Jackson's work, you know, where she talks about the global skeptic versus the local skeptic. You know, if you're going to be a skeptic, you better be a global skeptic because, you know, local skepticism just it's a lot harder to try to defend. So uh, I'm going to give you a chance, Joe. I really appreciate you hanging out with us and sharing this uh, argument. It's not too often that I can bring someone on to actually talk about, you know, ontology or ontological arguments or stuff because so many people are bored with it. But I just 
I'm like you, man. I just, it, it just, I'm fascinated by it, you mm-hmm. know? So I've, I've said many a times, you know, and, and, you know, uh, you know, bless, um, uh, Ben Arbor's heart, man. But he was working on some ontology stuff. That's such a tragedy there, but, yeah. uh, I was such a fan, man. He was, you know, he was, so good at breaking it down for people like me, you know, and, um, man, we're, we're definitely going to miss out on his work, but, um, man, I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm gonna give you a chance to, uh, plug your stuff. Uh, so it's all on you now. I'm gonna put the uh, spotlight on you. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I really enjoyed this and yeah, I just find this stuff boundlessly fascinating. Uh, talking about ontology, epistemology, all this sort of stuff, and how it relates to philosophy of religion. Uh, I guess just where you guys can find me, you can find me at um, Majesty of Reason. That's my YouTube channel. I also have a blog by that name, and I have a book by that name as well. It's on Amazon. You can find it uh, if you're curious. Uh, That's on critical thinking in the context of philosophy. And, yeah, I guess that's pretty much all. I mean, I also have a Phil Papers site if you guys want to check out some of the papers that I've written and whatnot. Um, but other than that, uh, the main thing is my YouTube channel, Majesty of Reason. So, uh, but, again, thank you for this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely would like to have you back. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe a longer show and do, you know, some real deep dives and <laughs> technicalities and things of that nature. So, you love the <laughs> Thank you, bud. I appreciate it. Thanks. So. That is this episode, Joe Schmidt. He's an author. He's a philosopher. He's a superstar on the up and come up. Yeah, he's young. Don't hold it against him. But uh, his book, I actually downloaded it from Amazon. Um, and it is it is not actually as if I expected something different, but it's a really good book. And I do uh, highly recommend it. Um, so I've got a few people coming up. I'm going to start doing a lot more shows. Um, I'm probably going to do about two a week now. Uh, I wanted to give an update on my daughter and, um, the situations there. So, you know, I talked about, I did the show where, or the little brief, uh, update on everything about, you know, stepping back and, um, you know, kind of spending a little more time, you know, with the family and things of that. So my daughter's responding well to treatment. She has, um, you know, days that she really doesn't feel good, but it seems like, uh, we're on the right path. We've had a couple more wrenches thrown in there. Um, I was actually just recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis on top of my wife being sick with autoimmune disorder. And, my daughter being sick with autoimmune disorder. Um, I'm less concerned about me and more concerned about them. Um, so, uh, that's, that's where we're at now, but you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a positive guy. Uh, I won't be defined by the difficulties that we have. I won't let them defeat us. Uh, it's only going to bring us together stronger and we're going to, you know, fight as a family. We'll be together. We'll, spend the time together that we need to spend um, and raise the awareness that we need to raise for it. So I appreciate everybody tuning in. I will be doing an update probably in a day or so about upcoming guests as soon as I have uh, some days that are confirmed. Don't forget you can catch Brute Facts on all the major podcast platforms. Sometimes it takes me a couple of days to get them uploaded, but it's on uh, Apple Podcasts, it's on Google, 
podcast, Spotify, all of them. And I want to thank Joe again for coming on and spending the time with us and talking about these uh, deep philosophical things, uh, ones that I happily uh, enjoy talking about. And if you're in the audience and got lost a little bit, yeah, sorry, but uh, we got to do these time to time because, you know, this is kind of the crowd that uh, we hang around and, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron. So with that, everybody have a good rest of the week and I will give updates on uh, upcoming shows, hopefully pretty soon. As soon as I find my exit video, don't know where it went. Okay. Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Crone. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content.